0: You know, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven more than anything else during his life and his ministry. And so obviously we should be concerned about the kingdom of God. But Jesus actually speaks about the kingdom of God in parables. And so we have to ask the question, why does Jesus use parables to communicate the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What's really happening behind these parables that we might not see? And what do all these parables about the kingdom of heaven actually have in common? I think once you understand what all these parables are designed to do and the picture that's being painted by these parables of God's kingdom, you'll never read these parables the same. So let's go ahead and get to it. Let's start in Matthew 13. Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. So just to understand the setting, we got a bunch of people standing on the seashore. We have Jesus, um, you know, sitting beside the sea, and crowds gathering. And then he begins to uh, get into a boat right here, gets into a boat, and he sits down. This is Jesus giving a chill message, which uh, sometimes the pastor during a Sunday service will break out the chair, and you know, oh, this is going to be conversational. It's kind of what's happening here. Um, And so if you notice Sometimes it'll go out of focus Like Jack said It'll always come back into focus The camera at least And so uh, don't get too bogged down by that. But Jesus in a boat sitting down, he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out to sow. And the reason we're starting here is because Jesus is going to explicitly say, the reason I speak in parables is because of this reason, right? Um, So I'm going to highlight as we go along, I've already highlighted quite a few things, so I might not need to do anything, at least here in Matthew 13. But when we get to the other parables, breaking out the highlighters. He told them many things in parables. These many things are actually going to relate to the kingdom. So I'm just going to write here kingdom, the kingdom of God. There's a lot of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus will explain in parables. And so this is why we're tackling the parables. And this is why we're starting in Matthew 13. And then we'll get to Mark. We'll get to Luke. He said, a sower went out to sow. So what do we have? We have a sower. We have a farmer planting seeds. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. Okay, so I'm just going to put a number one here because this is the first uh, kind of ground, type of ground that the seed will fall on, okay? And the birds came and devoured them. Now, you might be used to uh, just reading this as, well, these are just normal birds in the parable. They relate to nothing spiritually. Actually, Jesus is going to say that uh, Satan's actually involved in this, so I'm just going to put that there to let you know ahead of time. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. I'm going to put a number two right here to let you know this is the second kind of soil. Or, ground that uh, receives the seed, where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. So, it, when I read parables and just anything that carries descriptions, there's obviously a list forming that I want to pay attention to. For instance, when it comes to the seed that fell along the path, Okay, another translation will say like hard ground or hard. It's emphasizing the hardness of the ground the seed falls on. Okay, it's a path, and it's also a a commonly traveled path, meaning people are going to walk through there, and trample on the seed that ends up falling on that ground. Um, And the birds came, so we have birds coming in. I'm just going to draw an arrow there, and devoured. I'm also going to draw an arrow to devouring. Right, so they come and devour the seed along the path. That just picture that scenario. The second soil, however, is a little different. The seed falls on the rocky ground. Why is it called rocky? Well, there was not much soil or much depth. There's a lot of rocks, which makes it shallow dirt. And immediately they sprang up, meaning it's emphasizing the, the accelerated seemingly growth of the seed. Looks like really fast. Whoa, something's happening. But just because something happens quickly doesn't mean it's a good thing. Uh, Don't judge something too fast. And so it happens very fast that it springs up. So, you know, notice the the quickness of the seed showing up. Since they had no depth, which we want to bring that back to the idea of there not being much soil, right? Jesus wants to emphasize the fact that this specific soil... It's not just that there's much soil, but there's no depth of soil because of the fact it's rocky ground. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, which is, again, another way of saying it lacked depth, there wasn't a lot of soil for the seed to go down and actually develop a root system. And because of that, because the seed falls on shallow ground, it ends up being scorched and it withers away. So I just want to be thinking about that kind of a picture Jesus is painting and then everything that describes that specific soil. There's not much soil or depth. There's no root. It grows really fast, but it actually gets scorched um, and they wither away. Okay. Verse seven, it says, other seed, we're going to see a third ground now, other seed fell and this actually relates to the kingdom. To understand the kingdom, you have to understand the way you might say people receive the kingdom or the way that God brings his kingdom into people's lives. And the farmer here throwing seed is a representation of how the kingdom of God actually invades our lives. It actually falls among thorns. So this is the third soil, okay? The thorns grew up and choked them. Bummer. So that's the only description we get about this thorny soil is the seed gets choked out by what? By the thorns that'll, that are simultaneously growing up with the seed. Now you're going to see after this, Jesus will talk about another parable where we have the uh, tares and the wheats both growing in the same field. One is planted by God, which is the wheat, the other is planted by the enemy, the tares or the weeds. Both grow up together, and Jesus lets that happen. Okay, so we have thorns here choking our out. Uh, the, the seed that was planted, and it does, the thorns do grow up, and it doesn't specifically say that the seed actually grew, just that it was choked out and it ended up dying, never produces. So b- within this parable, I want to be thinking about what do these soils have in common? What do they not have in common? And so far, the first three soils, what they have in common is that neither of them actually produce fruit. There's apparent growth there's really, uh, there's a an immediate uh, sprouting up on the rocky soil, uh, but n- none of them actually produce fruit. But here's a fourth soil. Other seed fell on good soil. So we got thorny, we got rocky, we got shallow or hard, and now we got good soil. And this seed ended up producing grain. So I want to be thinking about, and Jesus will explain, this is the beauty of Jesus, is he'll actually explain mostly to the disciples and we get to get a sneak peek in there. He'll explain what the parables mean generally so they can have an understanding. And the seed produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. The interesting thing about verse 9, this idea, this almost call to to the crowds, whoever has ears, let him hear. That's not just Jesus um, calling them to action. This is actually a summary of what's taking place when this parable is given. There are those who do have ears that are hearing, there are those who don't that are not. Within the crowds, um, this parable Jesus gives is actually about what's happening real time. And this is a summary verse. Now we get to verse 10. And we're going to read through all of Matthew 13 because there are several parables that be get, get to be layered on each other, okay? So if we understand the parable of the sower, that will be the foundational understanding we need to understand uh, the parable of the weeds or the mustard seed or the leaven, okay? Then the disciples came and said to him, now I, I want you to notice who here comes to Jesus and asks for understanding. Now, they haven't explicitly done that quite yet but it's the disciples. What do they do? They come to him and they say to Jesus, you know, why do you speak to them in parables? They're really wondering. Uh, And he answered them, well, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not. It has not been given. So we all, we right here, We have Jesus making a clear delineation between two groups of people and the parable about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom ends up taking root in a person's life. That parable Jesus gives is also delineating between two groups of people. And you go, no, there were four soils. Actually the first three represent one group and the last soil represents another group, just as Jesus here. And usually what what will happen is whenever for instance, Jesus here is going to give his commentary and explanation of the parable. So we don't have to look that far to figure out what the parable means. What we can do, though, is let Jesus actually explain and ask, look at the scriptures and go, is there any explanation within this that helps lend credence to what the parable means? He says, To you, who's that? The disciples. It's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, And I'm going to highlight them in blue. Okay, that's category number two. So we should ask, who's them and who is the you? Well, who's Jesus talking to? The disciples. So what's he saying? To you, the disciples has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. What secrets? Well, apparently the kingdom of heaven has some secretive, mysterious, hidden aspect to it which a lot of people won't perceive, they'll miss it. It says to them, it has not been given, okay? So there's one group who does not have or has not been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Now, is that against their own free will? Is that against, is that like an unfair thing where they have an, you know, the disciples have the upper hand and these other people, you know, it's like, well, you're hosed, man, sucks to suck. No, it's that they haven't been given ears to hear or to know the secrets of the kingdom, Jesus will explain why it's not been given to them. It's not that there's an arbitrary choice taking place where God's like, I just, just, I just really don't want to let them know about my kingdom, but I really want the disciples to know. There's a delineation between two groups taking place, and we need to figure out what's the diff- what is the clear dividing line between those who can know the secrets of the kingdom and those to whom it has not been given. Okay, let's keep reading. Four, he'll explain to the one who has, well, he just said, you have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. So I might go, what is it that these people have, the disciples, that the other people don't? The only thing so far that's been noted is they've been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. But is there something else? Is there possibly another layer? Meaning the disciples have something that allows them to be given the secrets of the kingdom Versus the other people, they don't have something which leaves them unable to know the secrets of the kingdom. It says, to the one who has, more will be given. And he'll have an abundance. He'll have an abundance. Okay. Now, when I read the Bible, I like to, sometimes you won't see repeating words as much as you'll see repeating ideas. So I haven't necessarily seen the word abundance. What's up, Benny? Good to see you, brother. That's right, I see you. When I see the word abundance as my voice cracks because I'm 12 and I'm still going through puberty, if you go back two verses, Jesus explained, he didn't use the word abundance, but he used the concept of abundance to explain what the fruitful seed produces, right? Other seed fell on good soil, produced grain. Some a hundredfold, that's, that's abundant, man. Some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. So remember how I said like, Do they not know the secrets of the kingdom because God arbitrarily, randomly decided before they ever existed that I'm just not going to let them know? Or is there something else? Jesus says, if you have ears, then let him hear. So maybe the hearing right here, the word hear in the English language can mean two different things. Maybe the hearing here actually means to know. The secrets of the kingdom. Throughout my school career, I've prided myself in my handwriting. Not so much anymore, so I apologize. Uh, What I'm wondering is, and this is what I do when I read the Bible. Oh, hold on, wait. I was wondering, what does it mean that they have? And what does it mean that more will be given, right? Well, he says, if you have ears, let him hear. Meaning the person who will hear already has the ears to effectively be able to do so. So maybe when Jesus says to to the one who has, he's referring to people who have ears to hear, right? And then the people who have ears to hear, they're they're given to know the secrets of the kingdom. I wasn't going to take it to total depravity, SK Christ. First, your username is, I, I didn't know your name, so I just using your username, I wasn't going to take it there, but that's essentially what I was hinting at is the concept of total depravity. And believe me, I've read Martin Luther's uh, book on, in fact, I have it like right here. I've read it, (laughs) The Bondage of the Will. I've read it cover to cover. And so if you are a Calvinist and you hold the Calvinistic theology, nothing against you, but I I think it actually, like if you just break down the text and read it for what it says, you'll realize that... Maybe the concept of total depravity per the Calvinist is not necessarily biblical, logical, uh, all the alls <laughs> So to the one who has more will be given. Again, like I have nothing against that. Just I think it's on me to clarify what it means um, that these people don't have and why some are given and some aren't the secrets of the kingdom. But let's go on. He says, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So let's think about what has happened so far. What's transpired in the parable? Well, there was seed planted, but in every scenario, the first three at least, they withered away. They were taken away. And this is a huge theme in Matthew's gospel, is for something to be taken away. Whether it's the bad fish, whether it's the the weeds among the wheat, whether it's uh, the goats on the left hand of Jesus versus the sheep on the right hand of Jesus whether it's the wicked taken into destruction and judgment, whether it's uh, fruitless trees being taken and thrown into the fire, uh, the, the concept of something being taken away throughout Matthew's gospel is very evident. And so this is nothing different. It's going to follow that same um, theme um, throughout Matthew's gospel. So in, in the parable, we, we saw several things that maybe not necessarily were taken away, right? but they just eventually withered away. They didn't produce. And so the seed just, I don't know, became as if it was never there in the first place. Versus the person who has an abundance. Why? Because he has. So more is given. The abundance here is what's given to the person who already has something. They don't have an abundance to start with. They have something to work with, And because they have that, they're given in abundance. And I think the abundance refers to the fruit in the parable. Versus the other three soils, the fruitless soils, the hard ground, the rocky ground, the thorny ground. Yeah, those three soils. The the seed that was planted ends up being taken away. It's as if it was never there because it withers and it's just nothing. Never produces. This is why I speak to them in parables. Jesus says, that's interesting. He literally uses, he references the previous parable in order to explain why he uses parables. It is the, the layers are incredibly deep here. It's amazing. It is, is profound. He goes, that's why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they don't see. Hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. So we, we got to keep track of, of not only the two categories of people, right, explained in the parable, but also the two categories of people Jesus has already clearly communicated. Those who have been given to know the secrets and those who have not been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, right? We have to maintain those two clear categories as we navigate this text. So what we have to do is go, as we read each description, we have to ask which uh, which of these Which category does this description fit in? That's why I speak to them in parables. Seeing, they don't see. So I'm going to circle this. Uh, Hearing, they don't hear. So I'm just going to draw an arrow to both these things and say, you know what? They seem to be related. And I wonder if that's what it means that they have not. They have not. Um, And up here, he who has ears, let him hear. There are people who have, more is given but sorry, it's right here, the person who has not, right here. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have a heart to understand. And yet, and I think that's referring to a spiritual level, and yet they do see and they do hear. In other words, they have the physical senses in operation. It's just not clicking spiritually. You ever encountered someone where it's like, They have all the physical, not physical, data's not physical, but they have all the information. They've perceived it, they've read it, they've understood it, but then like you watch them live and it's like there's a disconnect. These people, the crowds Jesus is talking to, they're seeing the Messiah, they're seeing signs and wonders, they're seeing miracles and prophecy, you know, being fulfilled. They're experiencing it with their physical senses, but it's not penetrating their heart in a way where they actually understand And then the question becomes, why? Why? Because they don't have ears to hear or eyes to see, which is why they don't perceive the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Who does God reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to? Those who are already in a position, in a heart posture, to receive the seed of the gospel or the kingdom. Those are the people who get to understand because they're in a posture and in a, you know, they're in a posture of reception is what I'm saying. Only one of those soils was in a posture of reception and it was the fruitful one. The others, there was some degree of like, look, I'm growing and it scorched and withered away. The other one choked out by thorns. The other one never penetrates the ground, right? And so let's go to verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you know, you will indeed hear, but you'll never understand. You'll indeed see, but you'll never perceive. Isn't that interesting? And you go, why? That doesn't seem fair. Why is it that the crowds can hear the message of the kingdom and see Jesus, the entire representation of the kingdom, the the kingdom itself, and that they don't understand and they don't perceive? because they don't have spiritual ears or spiritual eyes or a heart to discern and understand what's in front of them. Let's go on. Verse 13. For this people's hearts has grown dull. If you read the account of Pharaoh in Exodus, and I'm reading the chat. If you read the account of Pharaoh in Exodus, Jesus, not Jesus. Why am I? I'm mixing up. God says that he'll harden Pharaoh's heart, but that doesn't actually take place until after Pharaoh hardens his own heart enough. His heart grows hard over time. Harder and harder and harder with each opportunity to repent and let the people go. It grows harder with each rejection of the signs and wonders. That's exactly what Romans 1 speaks of. Romans 1 touches on that. The people who continually come in contact with the gospel and the kingdom reject it, And walk away they grow even harder they become even darker they're given over to a debased mind ken that's right and so this people their heart has grown dull they weren't born with a dull incapable heart of believing it's like sorry you just you weren't given a heart that was capable of believing no their hearts have grown dull over time over time and with their ears they can barely hear And their eyes, they have closed. Does that sound like God's responsible for their, you know, rejection of the gospel and the kingdom and the Messiah? Is God responsible for that? Or is God sovereign over that? There's a difference. There's a difference. God works all things together for good, but he's not responsible for evil, is he? And so here we go. They have closed their eyes. Their hearts have grown dull. Their ears can barely hear lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. Which, by the way, isn't that fascinating? That understanding here, we usually think of understanding as cognitive and intellectual and you know having to do with the cerebral side. And, and, and yeah, the brain has a, a role to play. You can't uh, bypass that for sure. But understanding, when it comes to the spiritual reception of, of God's kingdom and the good news, that seems to be done with the heart. Again, not to the neglect of the mind Being able to understand the information, but it's a layer deeper. Someone can understand, like you can tell them the gospel and they go, I understand with my brain the data. I understand what you are saying, right? But in their heart, in their heart, they might not truly understand that spiritual truth, and there's a disconnect. There's a connection between the mind and heart. And turn and I would heal them. So Jesus is literally giving commentary on the kind of people he was, uh, the kind of soils he described in the parable of the farmer. He's explaining it to the disciples. And he's saying, you guys have been given to know. Why? Because God randomly chose them? No, because they're the people who are actually, who else came to Jesus and asked for understanding besides the disciples? We'll see this, I think it's in Mark or Luke's account. It doesn't explicitly say it here, but the disciples will actually come to uh jesus and go can you explain to us the parable um and he does that that we don't have anyone else recorded in the gospels of coming to jesus and going that parable of the sword didn't make sense can you explain that why because they don't have ears to hear they don't have a heart to understand they don't have eyes to see So they're not going to be seeking to know the truth and understand it deeper because they're not in a heart posture to do so. Contrast that with the Bereans in Acts. The Bereans in Acts, they hear the gospel from Paul and go, hold on, what you're saying, it makes sense. But we need to search our Hebrew scriptures to make sure that these things are so. Good on you, do that. Search the scriptures. You'll find that that's the truth. Good. But some people that hear the truth of the gospel and go, you know what, not for me. No reasoning? No wanting to know why, no wanting to have like solid reasoning and evidence for why you reject it. You just, nope. So I want you to see the parable of the sower explains the two different heart conditions people have in response to the gospel. And then the first category, those who reject the gospel and the kingdom, those people can be broken up into three categories and probably even beyond that. Jesus just, he doesn't exhaustively give us a list. He just says there's rocky soil, there's hard soil, and there's thorny soil, right? The other soil is fruitful. That's the key difference between the last soil and every other soil. It's that the seed of the last soil produce good fruit. And it's not about the amount either. It's like, well, how much obedience do I need to produce? How much good fruit? How much godly character do I have to produce to know I'm secure? So you understand that, that fruit is going to be relative to the calling God has of your, on your life and how much effort you put forth and how much you pursue God. It's going to be different with each and every believer. So I can't measure my fruit against yours to see if I'm a true believer. There will be good fruit in general. Obedience, love, growing godly character, all that stuff. But verse 16, he goes, you know, but blessed are your eyes. Remember, maintain that clear distinction between two categories of people as you navigate this chapter. Those who believe and those who don't. Those who know the secrets and those who don't. Those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and those who don't. Those who don't have blessed eyes and those who do. Blessed are your eyes for they see. What makes the eyes blessed here is the fact that they see. Well, hold on. You just said that they they see, but they don't perceive. Exactly. Exactly. Jesus is talking about the disciples have eyes that physically see the works and the miracles in Jesus, but those are blessed eyes because on a deeper level, they actually perceive and see who Jesus is. Maybe not perfectly, but enough to realize he's from God. And your ears for they hear. Notice blessing here, and this all relates to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't explicitly in the beginning, right, say, you know what, I'm about to explain the kingdom. But he actually tells us the parable involves the secrets of the kingdom. So he's literally in the parable of the sower, he's telling people how to receive the secrets and how to know the secrets of God's kingdom. Either you're postured to receive that in humility and reception, or you're not. And you're not seeking for truth. But the disciples have blessed eyes and ears, for they see and hear. It says, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they didn't see, and to hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it. So what is it that, I wrote this a while ago, I guess, just now seeing it. What is it that the prophets of old, and the righteous people of old, and all the Old Testament individuals, what did they long to see and hear and experience? Well, the secrets of the kingdom, mainly the presence of God on the earth, Jesus, the living word incarnate. He is the substance of the kingdom. He is the meaning of the kingdom. He is the delivery of the kingdom, right? He's the entire, entire, you know, definition of the kingdom. And you know what? These people didn't get to hear it and see it. So you guys, blessed are you guys. Isn't that awesome? And then verse 18, he finally explains it. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so remember how I said that the parable of the sower is actually about the kingdom, even though Jesus doesn't explicitly say that in the beginning. The word is the seed being planted. The word about what? The word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. Whoever hears that and does not understand, the evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So Jesus describes it. He explains it. He goes, remember how I said that there's seed of farmer plants on hard ground? That, that seed represents the word of the kingdom, right? And when anyone hears that word and doesn't understand it, it's like the seed of the gospel is landing just on their skin, their body. It's bouncing off they don't have the spiritual heart or reception to actually understand and receive that. Because whatever had been planted in their heart, it was the soil was not ready to receive and produce. So that's the first soil, okay? That's what was sown along the path. Notice how the evil one comes, which is what the birds represent in the parable. And there's not always a spiritual parallel to every detail in a parable. Like, know that up front. Uh, sometimes parables ex- are, are told just to communicate one main point and then we stretch that parable into something that it's not supposed to be and we're we're finding like these what we think are nuggets and revelations in the smallest details and it's like ah, be careful how far you take the details in parables they don't always have a parallel to like our life or the world not always sometimes parables just tell one main point and not every detail is telling you some secret about the world Okay, this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, okay, if you can see it, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And you go, that's a believer. That's a believer. Actually, I think I've explained in previous messages why I don't believe that's the case. I'm not convinced. This is saving faith. What I do believe is it's, it's a kind of reception, some surface level, shallow reception because of the fact that they don't last and they wither away. But nonetheless, not for today. Immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. Interesting. So there's no depth, there's no root in his heart for the seed to really grow and produce good fruit. Because what's the sign of true saving faith? Just like the seed sprouting real fast out of the ground and then dying? Or is it fruit? If it doesn't mature into fruit, it's not real saving faith. Period. But endures for a while. So notice this, for a while. Whatever kind of reception they had, it was only temporary. It's only temporary. They didn't endure to the end. Because when tribulation or persecution arises... On account of the word. In other words, the very word they were excited about two weeks ago in church, screaming, yes, now that they're following Jesus, it's adding another layer of difficulty to their life. Yes, did not expect this. I did not plan for this at all. So you know what? Immediately he falls away. What do we see in common with the first two soils? What do we see in common with the first two soils? That's something to ask. If there's ever a list of things that Jesus gives or biblical authors will give, it's on us to pause and go, hold on, I see a list developing. What does it mean for, or sorry, I was reading the comments. What is it that these items in the list have in common and what are the differences? Well, so far, what we see is that both soils, both people are hearing the word. They're interacting with the gospel. They have an opportunity to believe in the gospel and receive this kingdom and this Messiah. They have this real legitimate opportunity. And in both cases, there's no fruit. In both cases, there's actually no understanding. That's what's interesting about the second one. And you go, hold on, what do you mean understanding? It just says with the rocky, shallow soil that it received the seed or the word with joy. But because it didn't endure, And because difficulty arose and it fell away, it was scorched by the heat of tribulation. That's an indication to me, especially because Jesus doesn't say, and this person understands, that's an indication that this shallow, you know, no depth of soil individual didn't understand. So it's not just there's no saving faith and there's no fruit being produced. It's not just that they both hear It's that both don't understand. Uh, And I've been tracing this out for a while now. The concept of understanding in ancient Hebrew thought goes well beyond what we conceive of when we hear the word understanding. We hear understanding and we think, does the data compute with your brain? Do you see the dots connected with your brain? And you go, yes, that makes sense. I understand why two plus two equals four. But then the understand, or I understand that God says in His Word not to commit adultery. Let's ratchet that up. Forget mathematics. Let's ratchet it up. I I understand the data. God says don't sleep around, right? Don't commit adultery. But do you actually, beyond knowing the data, do you understand the reasoning behind that? Do you understand why He says that? Do you understand the consequences behind that? Do you understand the the absolute havoc and chaos that can wreak in your life? That's where understanding comes in. It's not just knowing the data and being like, I know the gospel. I've been sitting in church for 38 years. Do you understand the gospel? And the sign of understanding, which leads to saving faith, is that good fruit is produced in a person's life. As for what was sown among the thorns, now we got more soil, right? More seeds being planted. But this time we got the thorns, right? This is the one who hears the word, right? Does this person understand? Because the first two didn't. Does this person produce good fruit? Because the first two soils didn't. Uh, This is the one who hears, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Bummer. Bummer. So we got to think through this. Unfruitfulness is the commonality between all of the first three soils. What do they all have in common? None of them produce fruit. What do they all have in common? Uh, Well, they interact with the, the seed. The seed lands on it. What do they not have in common? Well, the first one has zero reception. The second one, there's a degree of reception. And the third one, it's as if it just got overtaken, never had time to really mature. In all three scenarios, though, none of them reached maturity. None of them produced fruit. And I also think it's important that we look at the concept of understanding in this chapter, and we go, okay, understanding and unfruitfulness; those are two commonalities between all three of the of the soils. As for what was sown on the good soil, why is it good? This is the one who hears the word. And what? I'm just gonna square that up. So you see, and what? understands it, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundred. In other words, it's not just about how much fruit, how much, how much do I have to bear? How much should I bear? It's well, in one case, it's a hundred. Another case, 60, another 30. Sounds like the parable of the talents, doesn't it? Here's 10 talents. Here's five. Here's one, right? Either way you have something, work with it. If you don't and it never produces and you're not a good Berean seeking the scriptures to see if these things are so, seeking to understand the gospel in order to you know, find yourself at real saving faith, like Bennett mentions Nicodemus. If you don't have that, there's almost a gap. You gotta understand, Jesus is explaining part of one of the secrets of the kingdom is that there's a gap between uh, encountering the gospel and the kingdom versus when you actually commit and believe in the gospel and the kingdom. There's a gap between your initial encounter with the gospel and when you actually believe. And that gap seems to be called understanding. And for some believers, the understanding is immediate. Like, I'm ready. I'm receptive. Let's do this. I get the gospel. Let's get to work. For others, right? It takes a little more, like, you got to hear the gospel a few more times. Until you're really in a position, in a heart posture to receive this. Um, I forget what it is statistically, but they say that uh, it takes at least uh, whatever number it is for a person to, statistically on average, a person will hear the gospel X amount of times before they actually find themselves believing, if they ever do. And I, I do believe that gap, the time it takes for someone to arrive at saving faith, it is called understanding. Understanding. So now we get to the parable of the weeds. That's the first parable that not only explains the secrets of the kingdom and how God's kingdom invades our world and our lives like either you're receptive or you're not, either you have a heart postured to receive it or you don't, either you have eyes and ears to hear and see or you don't. Uh, You know, besides that, Jesus is also explaining the subtlety of how the kingdom. Of God and the gospel uh, invades a person's life and heart, but also how clearly evident it will be. In other words, though it happens in a secretive way, and it's like you don't see what's happening underground in a person's heart, eventually that fruit will be produced and you'll go, that person received the seed. They were good soil. I didn't see it for a while, and maybe I jumped to, you know, a conclusion too fast and I judged too quickly, but man, I, That person is clearly a believer Believers bear fruit Over time, over the course of their life There will be good fruit There's no way around that And I've done a series addressing free grace theology Versus, you know, what's typically Described as um, I can't even think of the name right now But I've done a series, right? So besides that This is how Jesus essentially Opens the floodgates Of talking about the kingdom Because he at least Matthew Matthew organizes and that's the author of this gospel Matthew organizes his data topically by topic and category whereas someone like Luke a a historian giving a a chronological account to Theophilus he's going to organize his data in a chronological fashion Matthew is topically organizing his data so he's going to put all the parables of the kingdom um, at least a bunch of them in Matthew 13 and it seems like it's the parable of the sower. You know how, like, I hate to use this as an example, but you know how they say, like, weed is a gateway drug? In, in, a, in a spiritual fashion, this is the only example I can think of. It's like the parable of the sower is the gateway parable into understanding the rest. You understand that one, the others will make sense. You'll find yourself deeper in the other ones. I hate to use that crude analogy. It's the only one that came to mind. Um, they cut the point across. <laughs> parable of the weeds. We're going to continue to unpack the kingdom. I want you to be thinking about this. The kingdom of God, there's a way in which it's actually planted in a person's life to, uh, and that seed of that gospel, when it's planted in a receptive heart of faith, it produces good fruit so that you actually begin to see the kingdom in their life. That's the parable of the sower. The fruit is indication the seed was received. The fruit of your life is indication you're loyal to King Jesus and you're a part of his kingdom. So the seed, Peter touches on this. The seed of God's word when it lands in a heart of faith, it produces a new creation. You become a new person, a new heart, a new set of desires, a new conviction set of convictions, a new life, a new reality, a new identity. All that is birthed and produced from the seed you received. And that's instantaneous, of course, but the sanctification, the transformation over time, that takes that takes a while. Alright, so he put another parable before them saying, and here he'll explicitly say that the kingdom of heaven, X, Y, and Z, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So we have a man sowing good seed in his field. Now, what I'm going to do for you, see this handy-dandy blue highlighter? I'm going to use this to highlight good stuff. The orange one, I'm going to highlight bad stuff. Okay? But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came. Whenever I tell Bible stories to my kids and Satan comes on the scene or enters the story, I'm like, this is where we boo Satan. This is where you boo Satan. Let me know in the chat. Just boo Satan. (laughs) So we go, boo, boo. His enemy comes And sows weeds among the wheat, which is the good seed, right? And he went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, I love that you guys actually did that. The weeds also appeared. So notice the contrast between weeds, grain, enemy, and the man who owns the field. The enemy here comes in, plants, weeds. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to highlight in yellow, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Right. So he's saying, look, let me explain the kingdom of heaven in a different way. Let me compare it. And, and when there's a comparison drawn in scripture, okay, Jesus here is saying, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about a man who had a field and I'm going to compare, that's going to be a comparison to the kingdom. It's on us to go, pause, pause the kingdom of heaven in what way in what way is it similar to this story what's the comparison being drawn what's the comparison being drawn that's what we should figure out and either it'll be clearly evident um, or we'll have to do a little digging it says so the the plants came up and bore grain then the weeds appeared also how is it that the weeds appear well number one they actually don't bear fruit or grain in this scenario, and the wheat does. In other words, you know what the, the wheat actually is because bears grain. You know it's a weed because it doesn't, and it looks like a weed. And this is a, a, a huge motif in Matthew's gospel is the fruitless versus the fruitful trees, the barren and withered trees versus the fruitful good trees, right? The evil and wicked versus the righteous and the godly. The goats versus the sheep. Yeah, all these different ways of saying there is light and there is darkness. There are those who serve the light and there are those who serve the darkness. It says, And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Ah, He said, An enemy has done this. So the servants said, Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. If you gather the weeds, you'll root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow until the harvest. Now, what I should have been doing is highlighting the servants in yellow too, because Jesus is going to say the servants are actually angels. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, the servants, gather the weeds, boo weeds, and bind them in bundles to be burned. So what's the ultimate end of these weeds to be burned? Destroyed, removed. What about the wheat? Well, those are gathered into the barn. Now, when we have a parable, again, I I keep saying this, it's very important to make sure we don't take the parable farther than it was intended to go. Meaning this, that if Jesus is making a specific comparison to the kingdom with this parable— and he doesn't intend for every detail to parallel this kingdom, then we should make sure we know which details of the parable do parallel to the parable. That makes sense. So let's just keep in mind the weeds, the wheat, the good wheat, you know, the wheat produces grain, the weeds produce nothing, planted by an enemy. He's saying this is like the kingdom of heaven. And you and I go, it's not clicking, man. What do you mean? Well, he's going to put another parable in front of them before he explains the last one. So notice, Jesus doesn't explain this last one. He's going to tell another parable. I just ripped my Bible. (gasps) He's going to tell another parable. And by doing so, it's actually going to help clarify the last one. Jesus is a master teacher, just on a different level. He put another parable before them saying, <laughs> rip Bible, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Okay? So the kingdom of heaven is like what? It's being likened to a grain of mustard seed. Now, before you take that comparison too far, right? And beat stuff out of it that shouldn't be coming out, we should go, what, what about a grain of mustard seed? Represents the kingdom of heaven. Well, he says, a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Do you notice the last three parables about the kingdom? Of course, living in a a primarily agricultural society where they would be familiar with this terminology. But think about these three parables explaining the kingdom have to do with seed being planted and something growing or not growing. (laughs) Something growing or not growing, okay? A man took and planted in his field. We saw a field in the last parable, didn't we? And in that field of the last parable, we had weeds growing with wheat. How could, how could the owner allow such a thing? He explained why. If you tear up the weeds, you'll root up the wheat with it. Which sounds like the burning refers to judgment. But either way, okay, it is the smallest, this grain of mustard seed, it is the smallest of all seeds. Now, why would Jesus emphasize that? Is it possible that the smallness of the mustard seed is actually the comparison he's making to the kingdom? Is that possible? Yeah, I think so. Otherwise, he wouldn't make this unnecessary statement. You just you know what, let me just describe a mustard seed in case you've never seen one it's really tiny and it gets really big. So back to the comparison, sorry about that unnecessary detail. Now Jesus is going to explain, he's going to work with the information the audience already has for sure. But he's going to use this language of the mustard seed. It's small, it's taken by a man, it's planted, but when it has grown, oh it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Larger, becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air, remember how we saw the birds of the air two parables ago, except the birds in that parable represented Satan, and in this parable, see this is why I mean, if you, if you take the parables and the analogies of scripture, okay, and then you almost develop... Because people want to do this. They develop this weird coding system like they're solving a crime in their room with the lights dim and some weird ominous music going and some candles lit and they're piecing together the scripture and going, oh, the parables. In this parable, the birds are this, so that means in this parable... the they, they think that an, an image in a parable always carries the same meaning across every other parable. And frankly, that's just not how li- the biblical literature works. Because birds here... This is not Satan coming into the nest or coming and making its his, his nest under the the branches of God's beautiful kingdom. That wouldn't make any sense. The birds here represent something else. So, so be careful. All I'm saying is, be careful not to build a theology around some idea that in every parable this word or this symbol means this. Be careful because it doesn't. Symbols don't always mean the same thing in every context. There's different definitions being assigned different meanings, different environments, different points being made. I hope that helps. Okay? So the point of the mustard seed being like the kingdom is what? It's teeny tiny. But then it gets huge, larger than all of the garden plants. It becomes a tree. So it outgrows anything in a small garden. I know I said it like Trump, but that's just where it, how it came out. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. How big is this tree? So big that animals are flocking to it and going, we got to make a home there. Just huge. let's, Let's make homes in the branches. Let's make homes underneath the tree. What's interesting is this idea of a kingdom being represented by a tree. It's actually seen in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, I'll tell you something, in this case particularly, and there are other cases I'm sure, in this case, a tree represents a kingdom and so does it in another case, in another place, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He has a dream and, uh, or I forget if it's like his dream or Daniel's explaining it, either way, there's a tree or maybe God's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, I forget what it is, either way, Nebuchadnezzar... His kingdom is symbolically represented by a tree, right? And his kingdom is said to have grown so that the the, bird, the the animals have come and taken refuge in under the wings or the branches of his kingdom. And in that particular case, the animals coming and flocking to his kingdom are other nations coming into and being assimilated into his kingdom. So you wonder are the birds of the air here. Now, remember how I said, be careful not to assume because birds meant one thing in another parable that it means that same thing here. But because I see the same symbolism in this parable as I do about King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, I might want to research a little bit and be a Bible student and go, you know what? I want to research the scriptures and study and see if I see other places where a kingdom is compared to a tree. Right and see if there there's any any um uh validity to that conclusion. But also go to King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, read about his story, and and see if there's any any reason to believe that the birds of the air here, as it relates to God's kingdom, could these possibly be nations as well? Again, I'm not gonna assume, but do I see other scripture that reinforces that idea where Other kingdoms are assimilated into God's kingdom. I think there are several, and we've gone through those throughout this series. But I'm explaining it before Jesus does. That's my fault. I'm getting getting ahead of the game. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. How? Well, it's taken by a man. It's planted. It's teeny. It grows. It's huge. And it provides shade and housing for animals, right? He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Think about this. Kingdom of heaven, in this case, it's like leaven. In what way? Well, the leaven is hid and it takes time for it to be all leavened and it's specifically hid in three measures of flour. I don't know anything about baking or anything, but my wife would come in here with her sourdough stuff and be talking all about it, but I don't know nothing. So, beats me. But I think the concept rings true that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven and a mustard seed in what sense? In the sense that it's hidden. It's underneath the surface. You don't see what's happening, but it slowly grows and becomes something different. Not entirely different, but the form and the shape and the the degree of space it takes up, that changes, right? So I want to think about, you know, Jesus did a back-to-back parable here. Or at least Matthew organizes it in this way. And he goes, uh, leaven and a mustard seed. That's what the kingdom's like. So, if Jesus is going to use two specific images to represent his kingdom, I should ask, well, what did the two images have in common, right? Well, both cases, something is hidden, something is small, something takes time to develop and grow and become significant. Uh, in, in both cases, um, it, it becomes useful to other people, other creatures and things, right? Right? It's not just self. It doesn't terminate on itself. It becomes useful and beneficial to others. So um, I might just want to be thinking about that. The reason I'm saying this is because, remember, we put a pause on the parable of the weeds and the wheat or the wheat and the tares. Jesus did not explain that. Not yet. He's going to explain it, I believe, in right here in verse 36. Okay, the parables of the weeds explained. And you go, why didn't, Matthew just put the explanation right after it, because part of understanding that parable is seeing the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven as part of that. In other words, Jesus doesn't go, you know what, let me break down the parable of the weeds and the wheat for you. Before he clearly explains it, he tells two parables that will play into their understanding and help provide the framework for them to see and understand what it actually means. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. So Matthew's inserting some commentary, okay? He said nothing to them without a parable. Interesting. I'm just going to highlight anything relating to parables in orange. And you go, why, why, why? And Matthew's actually going to tell you why. Well, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, this is a fantastic concept. Just pause. Think about this. What we now know at this point in human history, looking back in hindsight at the Old Testament and the history of Israel, what we now know about the gospel and Jesus and his work and the future, it used to be a hidden mystery that God did not let anyone know. No one knew. The kingdom of darkness didn't know. The spiritual beings in the heavenly places and even angels they didn't know they longed to look into these things. And how does Jesus when he comes into our world and intends to reveal these mysteries? How does he do that? He reveals truth and mystery in packaged in well, I guess in a, he reveals it in a hidden way. Where like You know, you can deliver a message in code that someone else gets because they're on the inside and they get the joke. You ever have like an inside joke with someone and you can like in the middle of a conversation, just say one word that, you know, they'll get and it'll trigger a memory and you both laugh. And everyone else is like, what the you just delivered a secret message in plain language that no one else got. But the person who, you know, was with you when that he got it, he got it or she got it. That's the idea here is Jesus is delivering mysteries and secrets and uncovering those to the people who can receive it while the other people are like, what is he talking about wheat for? It's hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, it's interesting that Matthew wants us to pause, ponder that, and then he's going to get to the actual um, explanation of the parable about the weeds. Just something to think about. Why would Matthew insert that right there? Because so, Jesus essentially said that, I'm speaking to them in parables because seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, you know, all that stuff. And so you're like, why would Matthew want to pause the parables of Jesus and go, by the way, that this is why he talks in parables, because it relates to what he's about to say in verse 36. Jesus, however. Then he left the crowds, he went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, will you explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field? You know, they're catching on. They're like, you explained the last one. There's still one we are not getting. And you wonder how much time has transpired and how much time they've been just mowing it over going, no, we'll figure this out ourselves. We don't need to ask him. We asked him about the other one. Let's try and figure this out. You wonder how long it took for them to really humble themselves and go, okay, we couldn't figure it out. Can can you explain to us the parable? parable of the weeds in the field? He goes, yes. This is what I'm saying. Like, some people want to understand, and they come and ask and go, can you explain? Other people, we don't have anyone else recorded as coming to Jesus and going, that parable was wicked, awesome, man. We don't get it. Could you sit down and have a cup of coffee with us and explain it? Like, I wonder what would have happened if people actually asked and were wanting to understand. Either way, Jesus goes, well, the one who sows the good seed, that's the Son of Man. Okay? So he's telling you what each thing in this parable uh, represents. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. We have the good seed. We have Jesus present. We have the planting present. And he goes, well, the field, that's the world. So I'm just going to highlight, or circle rather, um, the explanation, the seed is, the, the one sowing is Jesus, the field is the world, and he says the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, okay? So we have one, two, three, uh, not characters, but I guess three things in this parable that have significant meaning. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, okay? Okay. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So I'll just put a number four here. And the enemy who sowed, if you can see that, that's number five. It's really cool when Jesus actually, like, breaks this down. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Okay. The harvest is the end of the age. I'm just going to highlight that in yellow if I can. The harvest is the end of the age. End of what age? That's something I should ask. And the reapers are angels. So we have angels. So we have five, the devil, six, the end of the age, and seven angels. So let's just think about this. When you actually look at it, if you were to like put this on a document, just a word doc, and you put, uh, you know, the one who plants the seed, son of man, the field, the world, The good seed, the sons of the kingdom, the weeds, sons of the evil one, the enemy, that's the devil, right? The harvest, that's the end of the age, the reapers, that's the angels. Well, now you can actually look at the parable and know what is symbolically represented in each specific thing. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. So this is going back to, um, again, if you missed it, the parable of the weeds, Uh, If you didn't know what we're explaining here, he says the weeds are actually burned with fire. I'm going to highlight in orange. Again, anything not good. It's burned with fire. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels. just going to highlight that in yellow. And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, which these are the weeds, all causes of sin lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace and in that place this is their eternal i guess condition there's just weeping and gnashing of teeth but the righteous the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father what is it that jesus ends this parable the explanation with the same thing he said at the end of the very first parable in chapter 13 in verse 9 he who has ears let him hear but now when he explains the parable of the weeds and the and the wheat he says the same thing so i'm just going to put verse 9 there okay i want to remember want to remember so let's think about the parable for a minute this is explaining the kingdom because remember he never actually explained how the kingdom of heaven was like the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds. He never explained it clearly, but now he does. So now let's think about this. He says, uh, at the end of the age, this relates to the kingdom, at the end of the age, the weeds will be burned with fire. This is a part of, in other words, Jesus is explaining, this is relating to the timeline of God's kingdom. At the end of the age, We know the weeds are all causes of sin and lawbreakers and sons of the devil. They are what? They are actually um, gathered or removed out of his kingdom. So the question becomes, the field, right, represents the world. If you go back to verse 38, Think about this. This is crazy. Verse 38, the field is the world. Well, in the field, God let the wheat, uh, the weeds grow up with the wheat. Why? 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 He tells you. Why? Because if he pulls out the weeds too early, he's uprooting the wheat with it and he doesn't want that. So he lets the sin persist and the wicked believers unbelievers rather wicked unbelievers and sinners persist in their unbelief and he lets the wicked run rampant amidst the church growing and believers being sanctified he lets that simultaneously happen because apparently to remove all sin and lawbreakers too early is has something to do with uprooting the wheat before it's time till it's ready And I think this parallels Romans chapter 11 when it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles when they come in, then all Israel will be saved. There's a timeline that God has. There are checkpoints along the plan, along the journey that God knows about that some some of them we don't know about. That's fine, that's fine. But we at least know about the main ones, okay? And at the end of the age, what happens is something shifts because the field is the world, right? We think about that. The field is the world, but now the world... Has become the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's the right time. And all causes of sin and lawbreakers are thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bennett said, Did you wash your hands? Absolutely. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the. I even sang ABCs. Actually, yeah, it's Baby Shark with my, my daughter. Layla and I have been singing Baby Baby Shark when we wash our hands. So think about this. There's a shift that takes place. And this goes back to Matthew 24. People do, do not like the fact that I believe when Jesus talks about, the, you know, two men being uh, in the field or two women being at the mill, one is taken, one is left. People don't like the idea that as far as I have studied and researched and, and prayed my face off, that I believe the people who are, um, taken are, are actually the wicked. And that's not talking about the rapture, (laughs) The, the wicked are taken and the righteous are left. And I think this parable actually lends, um, support to that, that the, the weeds are burned, taken out of what is now the kingdom. Whose kingdom? Well, now it's Jesus's kingdom. Now it's God's kingdom. There's a shift. It's, it's like God is waiting for the right time for it to officially be takeover. The takeover is coming. And while it will be subtle, it will also be immediate. There's a passage, I believe, in Revelation where the people of God sing, now the kingdom has been, you know, given to uh, God and his saints. It, it talks about how, like, um, either way, the world as it is currently is going to be handed over to Jesus and the father. And when that officially takes place, when it's time for God to be like, you know what? I'm done with this. Send the angels. When, when the takeover happens and the world becomes the kingdom of God, sinners, lawbreakers thrown into the fiery furnace and gathered out. And yet the righteous shine in the kingdom of their father. What is Jesus telling us about the kingdom of, of God? Well, Just like the mustard seed, just like the leaven, it slowly takes over until it's time to uproot the weeds and reveal the righteous. That just seems to make the most logical, contextual, and theological sense. And I say theological in the plainest way possible. What aligns with the character and the intent and the heart of God. So... This is, this, this is a different category from a lot of people. Have, they have to like reformat their understanding of end times and go, hold on, you're telling me that the kingdom of God is slowly but surely taking over through his people? And it's not like we're running into different spheres and going, we're here to take over commerce and, 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 and Instagram. We're taking over. I don't think that's what's taking place. I think what happens is the clock is winding down. And when it reaches the end, God's like, all right, boys, go get them. What are they getting? They're pulling the wicked out because the world has now become the kingdom of God and the righteous shine and sinners have lost their chance. It's been handed over. And this is consistent with the way we see kingdoms handed over throughout human history, but especially biblical history. Is, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon or Israel or Assyria or Egypt, or Tyre, or Rome, or Persia, whoever it is. Kingdoms just, it seems as though overnight they crumble just as quickly as they rose to power. Say, like what happened? Well, the clock ran out, and every kingdom has an expiration date, but the kingdom of God doesn't. So what's he explaining about the kingdom? It's that you can either be a part of it and be left shining, uh, like the sun in God's kingdom, or you can be taken out as sinners. But at the end of the age, when the world and the field officially becomes gods and not the enemy running around rampant, well, the, it'll be clear where the dividing line is and who's the people of God and who's not. Because right now it's not, though it is evident to us, those of us who have eyes to see in spiritual perception, um, it's it still feels like at times like, Oh, I don't know if that's a weed or a wheat, man. <laughs> and on Judgment Day, it will be very clear. There will be no, I don't know about, I don't know about, uh, you know, Franklin. He's just really, oh, it'll be clear. It'll be very clear. The kingdom of heaven also. Now, remember, think about how the kingdom of God, and we've spent an hour and a half just on Matthew 13. Lord, God help us. We need to go a little faster. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which is which a man found and covered up. And I believe this is actually speaking of Jesus leaving his glory, all the worship and renown and divine entitlements he has as being alongside the Father. He leaves that to come into our world and be the perfect living sacrifice for us. And in that sense, I believe that is the kingdom of heaven being hidden treasure. And the man finding this is Jesus Because the man in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, what is the treasure? What is it that the person is gaining? It's a field. (laughs) It's a field. Which he said in the last parable, the field is the kingdom. Now, remember how I said in specific parables, be careful not to just develop a list of, well, the the field always represents this. So if it's in this parable a field, then in that parable, it's going to be, it's like, whoa, hold on there, Charlie. We've got to think about this. Contextually, does that make sense? Well, because it's so closely connected to the last parable, and we're still talking about the kingdom and the value and the hiddenness of such, it would make contextual sense for me to say, he's actually purchasing this kingdom that we are now a part of. And the kingdom, as much as it is about a structure and a hierarchy and a government, the kingdom is actually the citizens of God and his kingdom. The citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus, I believe, is the one that's in mind here. Selling all that he has, giving his life. Because what could I sell to, to earn the kingdom? Nothing. The, the kingdom of heaven is far more valuable than anything I can offer. I can't make a transaction that's fair and go, you know what, I'll give you a, I'll give you all my Pokemon cards. And God's like, oh, here's my kingdom. It's not how it works. It has to be of equal value, if not more. And Jesus gives up his life, which is priceless. The infinite price and and value of the life of Jesus far outweighs the kingdom that he actually purchases by his life. And that kingdom is something we're a part of. So, again, I just want to think about the the characteristics of this kingdom. It's hidden. It's treasure. I'd say It's costly. And I'll say, it was purchased. Who purchased it? I couldn't purchase it. This isn't like, give up enough and sacrifice enough to be a part of the kingdom. Well, I've given all that I can. What's left? Uh, Your video games. Oh, man, not my World of Warcraft. Too bad. Give it up. Or you can't come into the kingdom. I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is, he laid down his life to purchase the kingdom, the field. And this infinitely... In, in his mind at least this hidden treasure of the kingdom is something that uh, someone said how old are you 31 I'm not even kidding I know that sounds like a, like a sarcastic joke I'm not <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant this is the second I guess after the parable of the weeds and the wheat being explained there's two parables three four four parables that actually kind of close this chapter out The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant now. So how is the kingdom of heaven like a merchant? Well, hold on. Jeez. Surely let Jesus explain. Like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When I read the Bible and I... uh, Let's see. When I read the Bible and I, I, I read something, like I see two parables... Right. I just, my mind goes to, I really want to think about what these two parables have in common. Do I see any commonalities? Yeah, I do. In the last parable, someone bought something valuable and sold what was necessary to get it. In this parable, I see someone seeking out something valuable as well. What do you think is being emphasized about the kingdom of heaven? That it's valuable. That it's valuable. That it's worth giving up whatever it is that gets in the way of you really enjoying and being an effective citizen of that kingdom. So I want to, you know, this is on you guys. Go and meditate on these two parables. Besides the value of the item, besides the costliness, and think about the fact that this merchant is searching for, and he finally comes across this one pearl of great value, which I again think is speaking to Jesus seeking out a valuable pearl. And when he saw how valuable it was, he went and he sold all that he had and bought it, which again has to be speaking of Jesus. I, I think the mystery of the kingdom is that someone else purchased it. You ever seen someone purchase like an old abandoned home or piece of property and then they restore that thing and they build on it and they make it incredible. And you're like, wow, you remember how that used to be like a crack house and now like this is a church that's impacting the community. It's so beautiful and glorious. Yeah, someone took something that really in and of itself wasn't all that incredible and made it something beautiful. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does. So someone asks, what's he selling? I'll tell you what he's giving up to effectively purchase this kingdom for his people. He's giving up his life. That's the necessary cost to effectively pay for sin and all the debt we've accrued. And to get us back to the Father, a death has to take place that can sufficiently pay for all human evil. So this is Jesus giving himself up to purchase our access into the kingdom and this kingdom that essentially... Uh, with the world and people who are sinners in charge, it's broken, tattered up, and you think, there's no way you can restore this, Jesus. And he's like, (laughs) give me, give me a minute. Give me a minute. Not hold my beer, hold my kombucha and watch me go to work. Because Jesus, I believe, intends through his people. I I think this, I am so convinced that this is the way, I'm so convinced that this is the way it'll work in, um, at least in the new age, when sinners and evil and Satan have been removed. It's that God will actually use his people uh, to to restore uh, the world into something new. Like, we actually get to play a part. God could just go, be like, done. Pretty cool, guys. And we're like, yeah. But we see in the garden, there's there seems to be, um, not a format, but just the way God does things is he partners with people, right? Right he partners with people someone said jesus didn't pay for the kingdom he paid for our entry into the kingdom i would actually say that you're essentially describing the same thing when you say both because think about this what adam and eve forfeited in the garden right was their legal rights to rule the earth under god's authority they they forfeited their authority they forfeited their rule they forfeited their reign Um, and, and really in the process, they gave up their ability to truly fulfill the calling on humanity, which is to, to reign under the authority of God and in relationship with him. So when you say that Jesus didn't pay for the kingdom, I, I understand the sentiment, but he did, um, this kingdom that we actually, because it's not just like, hey, heaven exists and it's like, he's bringing that down. He, he literally the kingdoms of the world in their current condition are messed up. (laughs) So Jesus takes over and, and you go, I don't know why you say he bought it. He owns everything exactly. He owns everything. And that's the crazy thing about him choosing to come down and purchase what we don't have, which is not only access to the kingdom, but purchasing the kingdom in its broken, tattered form and restoring that and making it new so that as new creation, we're a part of this new, I'll say it like this, a hybrid kingdom where it's heaven and earth meeting, Jew and Gentile, new creation in Christ. That is a new thing. That is a new thing. So while you say entrance, you might be thinking just heaven. It's like, we can just go to heaven. It's not at all all the only thing God has purchased. It's more about relationship with him in the new creation as glorified resurrected saints with Christ reigning in the new earth and having responsibility, all of that, all of that. So again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. So just think about the images he's used to represent the kingdom so far. A field, a seed, a mustard seed specifically, leaven, um, I think that's a treasure, a beautiful pearl, right? Just think about those things. And then think about what those objects have in common, and how they might relate to this parable right here. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. How is it like a net thrown into the sea? Well, it's not just about the net. It's about what the net is doing. Let's just highlight what the net is doing. So I'll highlight in yellow the net, right? The net is like the kingdom, or the kingdom is like the net. What is the net doing? Highlight that in orange. Don't worry. It was thrown into the sea, gathers fish of every kind, right? And when it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, so it's drawn by men, right? It reaches its fullness. I'm telling you, this has Romans 11 written all over it. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in and all of Israel is saved, God has not only expiration dates on human kingdoms, he has certain criteria that needs to be met in human history for things to progress. I don't know what those things are. I just know that he's really wise. And part of it is the amount of people who are saved. He drew to shore, sat down, sorted the good into one container and threw away the bad, right? The bad are thrown away. The good are what? Put into containers. Sealed. Protected. Secured. For what? This just has the concept of judgment written all over it, which is that God's people are secure in Jesus, the ultimate refuge. We're secure from the wrath of God that comes upon the world and sinners. But those who reject Jesus and his gospel, they are, they are not secure, man. They're not covered. So the bad are thrown away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate Separate what? So, so notice the way the kingdom is like a net involves separating the evil from the righteous. The evil are separated, right here. And they're thrown into a fiery furnace. Once again, in that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus trying to explain about the kingdom here? The value? Now, just like the parable of the, the field, we have good and bad together. Just like the field, we see this gathering and the net draws them up when it's full. When it's full, just like the field, when it's all fully grown, then it's time to harvest. In the same way, when that net is full, time to draw that thing ashore and the angels are going to come and remove the evil from the righteous. And where are they thrown? Into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This also um, becomes further evidence for the Matthew chapter 24 view that the one who is taken is the wicked and the one who remains is the righteous. It just, it, I don't know how else you can get around it. But again, the kingdom of heaven, I, this is what's so interesting. I used to read this as a kid, not a kid. I didn't care about the Bible as a kid, but like as a as an older, I'll say in like my younger 20s, okay? Because I can say that now I'm 31. I'm just... So I, in my younger 20s, I'd read the single. It really sounds like the the kingdom, not all three markers, that'll throw you guys off. The kingdom of heaven is like, in it, it actually involves the wicked in it. And that bothered me a lot because I thought, nah, the kingdom of heaven is just for the righteous, those who have faith. So how is it that the wicked are in this net that is the, represented as the kingdom or symbolic of the kingdom? How is it possible? And it's very simply because the kingdom of man currently, it's handed over to the rightful king and he executes judgment and removes the wicked from what is now his kingdom. But at the same time, the kingdom of heaven is still among us. We are citizens of the kingdom. We're ambassadors of the kingdom. We are representatives of the king and his kingdom flows and advances through us. So in that sense, the kingdom of heaven is here. But why does the kingdom of heaven seem to include the wheat and the weeds, the bad fish and the good fish, the goats and the lambs? Why? It's because currently the kingdom of heaven is here among us, but it's not fully realized. Not fully realized yet. When it is, though, what is currently, this is the idea, I'll say it like this like when a when a when a company is handed over to a new owner and the, let's take Twitter, for example, uh, when Elon Musk takes over Twitter and then which is now what x or something, and he removes a bunch of people who he doesn't want in his company now, but they were a part of the company before it came under his authority, and he removes them. That's the idea it's that currently God has allowed people to rule on borrowed time and authority every human ruler what think about all the nations right now think about what's happening with israel think about what's happening in gaza think about what's happening in the united states all the people who are in charge are on borrowed authority and borrowed time they're temporarily in charge but once the real owner of the world comes and takes over all is handed over to him and it's now his kingdom and when it's time to deal with the people who don't belong, he will remove them. He will. That's the picture being painted here. Is the kingdom of heaven slowly takes over and then suddenly, and not even like a takeover fashion, but like, you know, because you guys, you guys hear the word takeover and you're like, violence, aggression. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about the kingdom of God slowly. What am I trying to say? The kingdom of God slowly uh, reaches more and more people. And the more people that come into this kingdom, the more servants of that kingdom there are. And the more servants of that kingdom, the more places that kingdom invades, the more spaces that kingdom invades in a good way, in a good way. There's no space invasion. This is like a good invasion. And when that happens, there will be a time where God goes, the clock has run out. The kingdom is now mine and my sons and my people so it's time to remove the people who don't belong here there's going to be a change in leadership it's going to be a change in leadership it's going to be a change in who is in charge like because god's ultimately ultimately in charge right now we know that but to see it so watch last parable in matthew 13 then we'll see we'll get to matthew 12 i think the other parables are going to be Please, God, help us get to the rest of the parables. Have you understood all these things? They said, I'm, I'm sure there's some hesitancy when they go, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, we are we are in full agreement. And I'm sure there's a lot of questions they have, but they go, yeah. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. who? He's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Interesting. Now, I'll be honest. At first glance, I'm not entirely sure what Jesus is saying here, but we can piece this together. Together, together. <clears throat> he says, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom, I highlight the kingdom in yellow, kingdom of heaven. What is that trained scribe-like. That trained scribe who is specifically trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Not exactly the master, but in a symbolic sense, a master of a house is a good way to explain this trained scribe's job. Like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is New, and what is old? Now, is this speaking to the new revelation and the mystery revealed in Christ? You know, pulled from the Old Testament because something really clicked with me the other day, and I think that might be what's happening because he says scribes essentially are are of course they're they're writing and documenting and and um, doing that kind of thing, but when it comes to the the um, the scribes' role, they had a degree of. Uh, teaching authority as far as I understand um, the scribes had had a degree of uh, instructing and not just writing things down but teaching and if he's saying look in the kingdom of heaven there are those who will teach and instruct and they have to be trained and that's kind of like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure new and old I think what he's saying is that the kingdom of heaven the kingdom the kingdom is concealed in the old and revealed in the new. And what I what really clicked for me when I was reading Romans the other day was this. Um, in fact, I'd be happy to take you guys there. But I do know the scripture where it's like all scripture is profitable for teaching, instructing, and we're like, yeah, 2 Timothy, I think, is what it is. But what about Romans 14? Read this. Whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, Torah, Uh, prophets, the writings, psalms, yes, Bennett, you're on it, was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So when people go, the Old Testament has no bearing, are you kidding me? (laughs) The Old Testament gives you the categories to understand Jesus and his work and his gospel and your role in the kingdom and everything that you and I are foreign to because we're 21st century wherever we are, and that gap we have to close between us and the original culture, that's old testament does that. The old testament gives you the categories necessary for understanding Christ and what he's done. So look at whatever was written in former days, being anything that God told his people to record and give as authoritative scripture. It's written for our instruction. That being new New Testament believers. New covenant the New Covenant Church. We, we, we receive endurance and encouragement through the scriptures that point to us our hope so the reason i bring that up is because i think possibly that's what jesus is touching on and i notice like every time paul will teach or jesus will teach of course they're working with their primarily jewish audience in the in the book of acts and and they're and they're trying to argue from their scriptures that yes jesus is the messiah yes we see all these categories yes he was prophesied yes all this stuff and we're seeing all of it, but for us, we're like, we don't care. Like, we don't know the Hebrew scriptures. We'll know it. Because then you'll see all the stuff. Jesus is, is really, the, the the raw ingredients of the meals he's cooking up for people, man, you'll see it. And once he puts it all together, he's taken Psalms, he's taken Isaiah, he's taken you know, passages from Exodus and Leviticus, and he's mashing up this delicious meal, and then he's showing you, taste this. It's called the gospel. Tell me if you like it. And you're like, I actually like it. What are those different ingredients you put in there? And then go, hey, let me show you. Let's taste each individually so you can enjoy, that you can really savor and, and, and value the meal as a whole. When you understand that um, the way they reasoned from the scriptures was going, not just, here's what Jesus, uh, a random Jewish carpenter from you know uh, Nazareth did, but they're going, let me walk you through the Old Testament, well, beginning from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, I'm going to show you who Christ is. When you do that, <laughs> that's amazing. And that's what I think he's talking about here. He's instructing, showing the mysteries of the kingdom by using the Old Testament as a platform and as the medium through which that's delivered. And it's the raw ingredients of the gospel, you might say, is found in the Old Testament and it culminates in Jesus He is the substance. He is the full meal. And if you, I'm not going to make a Burger King joke. Matthew chapter 12. Let's go to the next parable. Matthew 12, baby. All right, here we are. Now, this is interesting. This just speaks of, well, I'll just let you guys see what it speaks of. It says, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed. And they say, can, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. It's probably how I, it's how I imagine them saying it. Maybe with a little more like nasal cavity involved. But but uh, maybe maybe even act like, like, a, like a Carl Weezer from Jimmy Neutron. Little wheeze in there. But I imagine, and I'm the reason I'm pointing to Beelzebub and highlighting Prince of Demons was because there are two I, I want you to see this, this is really cool. It's also bad, but it's cool. The Pharisees, they look at Christ and his work as being empowered by Satan, pretty much. He's, you know, Beelzebul is the Beelzebub is a Prince of Demons. He's the one empowering Jesus. The other group is going, Can this be the son of David? Like they're not fully sure. They're on the they're on the edge of their seats going he might be, but we're not convinced, right? H- here we actually see two of the categories put forth in the parable of the sower. So remember I said there's two ultimate categories, those who believe, those who don't. Within the category of unbelievers, there's the par- there's the hard soil, there's the rocky soil, and there's the thorny soil, right? Right here. They're encountering the kingdom. Jesus is not just preaching the truth. He's demonstrating it. He's healing. He's casting out demons. The kingdom of God is among them in power. And what are the two responses? He might be the son of David. I mean, I'd, equa- I'd equate that not to the hard ground, but possibly to the rocky ground where it's like, yeah, we kind we, we kind of get it and we might follow him for a while, but then if things get hard, we out. But then you got the Pharisees, who it's like hard ground, like very hard ground. They're looking at a demon-possessed man getting healed, and and they're going, Jesus is just empowered by Satan. Knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. He's actually giving us insight into um, really how kingdoms should work, but also the fact that there is a legitimate kingdom of darkness. Like, it's real very real. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? Guess what Jesus just admits Satan currently has rule over, a degree of authority over, ownership of temporarily? He has his own kingdom. Now you go, that's the kingdom of darkness and the demons. But you have to wonder, when John, in John's gospel, Jesus does say the ruler of this world is cast out. It's as if the world was the kingdom that Satan was temporarily in charge of because Adam and Eve forfeited authority to the serpent, right? So technically, in the legal terms and conditions, Satan, before Christ comes to do what he does, Satan is the rightful ruler of this world world system, and the way it functions. Jesus actually kicks him off his throne at the cross, renders him powerless so that we can come out from under his his power and authority and become citizens of God, and we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, okay? So I wonder if part of Satan's kingdom at this point in human history when Jesus is doing what he's doing, the world might actually be a part of that. It's not just a spiritual kingdom, It's Satan has legal reign and rights over the world, technically. So that is just a part of his kingdom. The world was assimilated into the kingdom of darkness until Jesus comes. So this lends, I guess, credence to what I was saying about the parables in Matthew 13, where it's like, it seems as though the kingdom of God comes in power. And then all of a sudden it's like, this is my world and Satan's out because right now, he's the one in charge uh, until Jesus goes, You know what? You've been on a tight leash for long enough. You're done. E- you're done. He says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Oof. Therefore, they will be your judges. Right? Now, you guys ain't yelling at your own people for doing this, and I actually do it and do it right, and all of a sudden I have a demon? But if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or another, this is not just Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is in your midst, like a, like a, like a friendly warm cup of tea just served right in front of you. The kingdom of God's right here. It's not just within reach. It's not just at hand. He says it's come upon you. And you, you can look up that phrase in the Greek to verify what I'm saying. But it seems as though what he's about to say explains what he means. In other words, the kingdom of God is overtaking not just the world system, but anyone who aligns themselves with Satan and his kingdom. They're overtaken. They're overcome. It's as if the kingdom of God is not like uh, a positive thing for the enemies of God. It's coming upon them ominously like you're doomed. Is coming, because remember, redemption for one means judgment for another. We see this at the Exodus. We see this at the way God deals with people and kingdoms. Redemption for His people means judgment for those who are not. So, watch what He says. He says, "How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Plunder! I'm just going to highlight this in, in in orange. Plundering his goods, coming upon you. Any language of like conquering." Unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. <laughs> Jesus ain't playing! Whoever is not with me is against me. Who is against Jesus in this scenario? Some hypothetical strong man? Nah, man, it's the Pharisees. They're the ones standing in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom and his work. What's Jesus saying? The kingdom of God coming upon them is similar to someone really strong entering into a strong man's house, plundering his goods, taking over, binding that strong man, then plundering his house. And Jesus is going, essentially, you guys are the strong man in this scenario. And you're a part of the opposing kingdom. You're not on the side of God's kingdom. You're actually standing in stark opposition to God and his kingdom. And if you remain in that condition, you're like the strong man being plundered and rendered powerless and overtaken by the kingdom. Instead of being a a part of this kingdom, you're being overtaken by it. And that is not a good thing for the unbelieving Pharisees. That's not a good thing for God's enemies. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And then you can go on and on and read this, but I just wanted to show you that aspect of God's kingdom. This parable gives us insight not only into the enemy's kingdom and the way that kingdom operates, but the kingdom of God. His kingdom overtakes, plunders, conquers, and renders the enemy powerless. And anyone who stands with the enemy in his kingdom gets trampled down too. This is Jesus subtly dropping hints about what he's doing and what his kingdom will ultimately do. It's a spiritual war. It's a war of kingdoms, and it's not a competition, mind you. It's not even close. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18, where we look at the parable of the unforgiving servant. So that's a lot of parables down. Even if I cut this short and I don't get what I wanted to, at least we got Matthew 13 in the bag. That was really the bulk of what I wanted to do. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm feeling a potty break coming on. Y'all pray for me. I want to be peeing my pants. <clears throat> I know where my son gets his tiny bladder from. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 18. He says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So, whatever he's about to say has a connection to, I'm going to stay consistent, the kingdom of heaven. What is it compared to? A king, not just any king, but a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. Does this not sound like judgment? Whatever is about to be compared to the kingdom of heaven involves settling accounts. Think judgment, think rendering someone for their whatever they've deserved. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So I'm just going to highlight in blue uh, the in, in enormity of this debt, owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Do you remember, it was the parable of the, the hidden treasure, the parable of the the pearls, how like something had to be sold to uh, you know meet the cost of that valuable pearl or that valuable treasure in the field um i wonder if something similar is happening here and the only reason i say that is because this is another explanation of the kingdom just as the parable of the treasure and the pearl were and so there might be correlation to the fact that someone or something is about to be sold because he can't afford something, whereas you know um, in the parable of the treasure and the pearl, I believe it's Jesus who comes and sells what is gives up what is necessary to actually pay for the kingdom and our entrance into it, so it 's almost as like what I 'm trying to say is the man in this parable might be someone who if you uh pivot to our world in reality. It's a person who can't afford the kingdom of God or entrance into it. The, the, the debt of their sin is enormous. There's no way they can afford that. They can't pay for that. They can't meet the standard of God. So his master ordered him to be sold with all that he had in payment to be made. That, that's what I really want to focus in on. Is the king demands payment justly, rightly, legally? He's do that. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, "Have patience with me." So I just want to highlight anything that I that possibly might relate to the kingdom. I just want to highlight in yellow and, and hopefully will confirm my suspicions. Patience, this desire for patience, an enormous debt that can't be paid, right? This imploring of the servant going, "Be patient with me, I'll pay you everything." and then the master has pity. Out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Oof. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. In other words, now, in this case, the person who had the enormous debt is in the, sp- is in the position of the king in this scenario. And the person on the other side is like how he was before the king. I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Oof. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You, watch, watch the language, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Well, isn't that the reasonable response? Mercy Someone said, swallow away from the mic. It turns into ASMR weirdness. You know what? Just for you. Couldn't hear a thing, could you? I found my mute button. So this is the point. Some would interpret this to be like, you know, a believer has been forgiven. They're regenerated, recreated. They're at right standing with God. Let me crack my back. and and they're a new creation, new heart, they're saved. And then all of a sudden they don't go out and forgive someone and God's like, you know what, give me that salvation back. You didn't forgive them, so I'm taking it back. So hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa. So our salvation depends on my ability to forgive perfectly? Is that what's happening here? Or is something deeper going on? In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will not, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Woof. So what's the main point here? Forgive your brother from your heart. Now you can say what Jesus has in mind is salvation, spiritual regeneration, all that stuff. I would say, well, hold on. We're in Matthew 18. At this point in Jesus' ministry, there's a lot of things that aren't clear about what he does and what he's going to do and how what, what will happen to you if you believe. There's a lot of that that remains mysterious. What I do believe is happening, and we're going to see this in the following parable, so I'm going to put this on pause, okay? I don't believe this is saying you need to forgive people or God will take back what he's given you. Rather, I believe, okay, what I believe is taking place is is the the wicked servant that's in mind and you're not gonna you're not gonna like this but I believe it's unbelieving Israel as a nation I believe that the wicked servant here is actually unbelieving Israel as a nation national political Israel unbelieving rejecting God not the remnant and you'll go why because Matthew's gospel like this fine fellow would like to explain is primarily written to a Jewish audience Matthew organizes his data topically okay not chronologically that's not his intent his intent to is is to explain Jesus and his ministry and his life as messiah as son of david as the anointed king we've been waiting for he's explaining that in a topical way addressing things that pertain to the kingdom and the kingdom is a huge theme in Matthew's gospel So what I believe is taking place, and I'm going to show you why with the parable of the wicked tenants, the parable of the laborers, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the marriage feast, is that this is Jesus actually um, talking to a Jewish audience, like this brother likes to explain. He's talking to a Jewish audience who trusts in their descent from Abraham, having the law, knowing Torah, having physical circumcision, having the temple, having the sacrifices, all, in other words, their Jewish heritage. And, you know, national identity as Jewish people, that's their pride, okay? That's their—that's um, what gives them a sense of self-righteousness and we're good with God. And what I believe is Jesus is doing, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he shows what the standard of God actually is. And he's going, you understand that if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, then you also will experience judgment just like the rest of the world that you're judging, and so the, the point here isn't to say this is restricted to Israel. What I'm saying is Jesus' ministry is to bring salvation first to who? To the Jews. And just like Paul will follow in Jesus' footsteps, Jesus seems to be um, removing any kind of ground for uh, the Israelite to stand on for a sense of security. Okay? So I want you to think about this. He says, uh, you know. He will do to every one of you and guess who he's talking to? He's talking to primarily Jews. and we love Jews. We love the Israelite people, but there are both believers and unbelievers in the nation of Israel. So national Israel as a political identity, as a political entity is not, you know is not secure because they descend from Abraham. They have to have the faith of Abraham. This is all of Romans and Galatians. So the point of Jesus addressing them particularly here is not to say I'm only talking about Jews, but he's specifically addressing their self-righteousness and Jewish identity and heritage and essentially saying, you know, the standard of God, if you want to get righteousness by works of the law or trust in your national identity, you understand God's standard is perfection. So you have to forgive your brother from the heart if you actually want to have his forgiveness for you by your works. But what you'll see is that later on, or earlier rather, in Matthew chapter 6, there's a similar statement after the prayer given in Matthew, uh, Matthew 6. And so what I'm saying here is I'm not saying forgiveness doesn't matter for the believer. I'm saying when you isolate this to be about the individual, you come to some wonky conclusions about what God demands for us to stay saved or be saved. And I don't think contextually it fits. I think what's more in mind is Jesus is talking to them going, God's standards of perfection got to forgive people perfectly to actually have his forgiveness and they're like we can't do that exactly 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 you're in the right place so you need someone to do the law perfectly for you huh and that's where they would go I, I guess we do but there's a sub point within this which is that you understand forgiveness is an incredible incredibly important part of our christian faith if i receive forgiveness how dare i not give that freely but it's not, I should give forgiveness, so I keep mine. I want to stay forgiven in God's sight, so I better keep dispensing forgiveness. No, it's because I've been forgiven. The fruit of a true believer, the evidence of a true believer who's been forgiven by God, is that they will forgive throughout their life. So, let me explain what the parable of the, um, let's go to the, we'll go to the wicked tenants after this. We'll do the parable of the vineyard laborers, Okay. I want you to see this real time. We're going to go chronologically now, at least throughout Matthew, um, even though it's topically organized from our vantage point. We're going to go through Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 20, the laborers in the vineyard. Keep in mind the whole aspect of forgiveness, because I know some would go, well, he was forgiven. Think about the nation of Israel and God uh, patiently. Well, this is what Paul talks about in Romans. How there was divine forbearance, God patiently overlooking the sins of people in order to offer them grace. That the nation of Israel is the, the pinnacle example of that. Um, so in that sense, they received the sacrificial system to deal with unintentional sins and ritual impurity. That, that is the form of God. Or in the parable of the, the, the king, go and I forgive, You know that's their version of that. Matthew 20 says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning, which to go back to the last, um, parable, essentially what I'm trying to say is the kingdom of heaven is, I think Paul mentions this, that it's about, it's not about talk and power or it's not about, uh, word and, and D de- or what is it? Gosh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the kingdom of heaven is not merely taught food and drink or something like that, but of power. And find the verse for me. (laughs) I can't find it. You know what I'm talking about. That's what I'm trying to say is forgiveness is a large part of the kingdom of God. It's more about how you treat people and less about what you gain in the process. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, so let's think about this. And I believe this actually is going to be uh, symbolic of, of Israel. Okay, I have my reasons. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. We're going to see in the next parable, the parable of the, the wicked tenants in Matthew twenty twenty one, that the people who um, occupy the, the owner's vineyard are wicked servants. And those wicked servants in real time are the Jewish leadership, the, the, the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes, essentially the unbelieving Israelites of, of Jesus's day that take up space in God's holy land and have all these beautiful things. Um, But nonetheless, he sent them into his vineyard. The vineyard will represent um, all the unique benefits uh, that come with being the nation of Israel. And I think what will happen, you'll see is that in some degree, the Gentiles benefit from that heritage through Christ. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. So we have the master going at different times of the day. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they all agree to work for a certain payment. That's what they're agreeing for. Uh, agreeing to, rather. So they went, going out again about the sixth and ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour. So we have... Um, uh, Early in the morning, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said, why do you stand here idle all day? They said, no one has hired us. He said, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Do you notice in every one of these parables, retract that, in most of these (laughs) parables, it, it involves a degree of judgment and um, whatchamacallit, what's the word? Uh, we saw it in Matthew chapter 18. Settling accounts. That's the word. We see settling accounts and judgment. And it's just interesting, right? It's like the king of kings is going to hold people accountable for how they live and what they do with really the life he gave them and the breath he gave them and living in his world and having opportunity to believe his gospel and people are going to be held accountable, man. They said, no one's hired us. He said, you go into the vineyard too. People are working, right? And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Interesting. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. You remember what the people in the early morning agreed to, right? The people who've been working all day in the heat, they got up the earliest, they've been working the longest, they agreed to one denarius. Well, now the people who have been only been working for like an hour or two, who the master found around the 11th hour, now they're receiving a denarius too. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they'd receive more but each of them also received a denarius. On receiving it, they they grumbled at the master. How dare you grumble at the master? Shouldn't have done that. Saying these last worked only an hour. What the heck? And you've made them equal to us? We've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Listen, did you agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give you this to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? Melody says, reminds me of the older son. She's talking about the parable of the prodigal son. I absolutely agree. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, this is... um, Trying to think. Right before this chapter starts, Jesus said the same thing. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I've done a video on that. What I believe is taking place is actually um, well, you can you can read and go on to see how um, James and John will ask their mom <laughs> to go tell Jesus, Can we sit on your left and right hand when you come in your kingdom? But Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven is like a master. Okay. And we want to draw all these parallels and go, who's who's the people working early? Who's the people working late? Why are they all getting equal? The, I don't think that matters as much as the kingdom of heaven is. It belongs to God, and He gives as He chooses. He gives as He chooses. He gives to whom He wants, what He wants, how He wants, and He's actually told us how He does that. Whether you are, which I believe in this text, if if you are a, a part of the nation of Israel and you've essentially, you have a rich history and heritage where your people have metaphorically endured the heat of the day and you've had a long history with God and then all of a sudden Gentiles come in late to the party having no history with God and your people and they're like, we're in the church too, baby, following Jesus just like you and you're like... If you're an Israelite, you're going, the heck are they doing here? Hmm, they shouldn't be here. And depending on how you respond to a a Gentile having access to the kingdom, that can be an indication of whether or not you truly follow the God of Israel or the God of the universe, for that matter. So the point is, and I think we're actually going to see this um, in the parable of the two sons, but I believe what's in mind here is Israel begrudging the generosity of God to the Gentiles. And essentially what happens is the point of the parable is that the, the master, the owner, distributes what he wants, how he wants, to who he wants. And this is how the kingdom of heaven works. It is just retribution. There's no partiality between Jew and Gentile. Like Melody says, it's, it's Jonah and Nineveh. It's Jonah who actually becomes... Uh, the rebel in Nineveh who ends up becoming like, um, the people who are saved. It's this weird reversal, right? Let me take you to Matthew 21, 28 and 32. We see the two sons parable of the two sons. And then we're actually going to jump to the next parable right after it. Interestingly enough, let's keep talking about the kingdom. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind. Huh. Sounds like repentance, huh? And he went. And he went to the other son and said the same, right? And uh, he answered, I go, sir. In other words, he paid lip service. But he had no heart intent to do it. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. What did Jesus say in the last parable? First will be last, huh? Isn't that interesting? That you can have two Israelites, and this is th- there are layers to the parables as well. You can have two Israelites. One believes, one doesn't. One does the will of the Father. The other one doesn't. And it's as if they're an unbeliever, as if, as if they have no part in Israel and their heritage because they don't believe in God or actually obey what he says, which the main command is to believe in the Son. So the first Jesus said, truly, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So you might want to say that in the last parable, the idea of the first and the last isn't about Jew and Gentile, which I'm still convinced it is, but primarily it's about the last, the people who you think God would let into his kingdom, tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Those are the last people you think would ever have a chance to be in his kingdom. Come on, they're sinners. Blech. But then you'd think the, the Pharisees and the righteous religious leaders and those who have have all this uh, all the elegant language and the fancy phylacteries whatever that means right those people you're like those definitely say those are for sure the people of God and Jesus is going actually. The people who you least expected, who you thought would be last to come into the kingdom are first because they're believing and you're not. So if you do come in, they're going in before you do because they're responding in faith before you have. It's that simple. It's that simple. Scripture is amazing. But I do think that the other layer to the previous pair about the first being last, it does involve Jew and Gentile. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. Can you imagine hearing this? You have so much pride in your knowledge, and your law keeping, and your rituals, and and your status, and your national identity, and your physical circumcision, and you have sacrifices in the temple, and, and all that stuff. And Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, looks at you and goes, collect. Tax collectors and prostitutes believed in John and they believe in the Messiah. So they've entered the kingdom before you. They're first. You are last, if you even enter at all. And even when you saw it, you didn't afterward change your mind and believe him. Isn't that interesting? You had the chance to change your mind, you had the chance to believe. You did not. You did not. Now, watch the parable of the tenants which, again, Jewish audience in Matthew, right? But that doesn't mean there's no wisdom for us. The point is, most parables are exposing unbelieving Israelites from believing Israelites. Most parables are making a clear distinction and delineation between light and darkness within Israel, just as um, God does in Egypt when he brings... Uh, the darkness over Egypt and the light in over Israel. There's a clear delineation where it's like, those those are God's people because, look, they have light. And the Egyptians are like, yeah, we're in darkness, though. It's like, well, it's pretty obvious who's with who. I think the same thing is happening with the parables. In other words, as much as we want to insert ourselves into the narrative and scripture and make it all about, apply to my life, apply to me, apply to, Understand that there's wisdom to glean, and that's why I took you to Romans 15, verse 4 but the original audience is receiving this and, and Jesus is doing something for that original audience which might seem foreign to us and we need to bridge that gap and understand that all these parables are intended to strip self-righteous, unbelieving Israelites of all their false security and all the sense of spirituality they have so they're left naked and bare before God needing Jesus as much as the Gentile. As much as the Gentile. Here, another parable, okay? And he's actually going to say that this is, if I'm not mistaken, related to the kingdom. That's why I picked it. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. He leased it to tenants. You know what that means? It's borrowed. It's temporarily occupied. It doesn't belong to them, right? Right? He went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. In other words, this master is interested in just getting what rightfully belongs to him, his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent, the, uh, he sent other servants more than the first, and they actually did the same. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. If you don't already, if you didn't catch it already, this is about Jesus and this is about the nation of Israel historically and their response to the prophets, their response to God and his word, their response to the opportunity to repent. Um, There's a lot, but when the tenants saw the son, now again, he's He's wanting you to see the nation of Israel as tenants, as people who are living somewhere that doesn't belong to them rightfully. It actually belongs to the owner, and they're on borrowed time, and they're living um, in someone else's rightful property, which means they have a responsibility to give to the owner what he's due, whether that's payment, whether that's, in this case, it's just fruit. The owner just goes, look, you can enjoy, you can use, you can even benefit. Just just, just give me the fruit. When they saw the son, they said, listen, this is the heir. The sun is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, and he will... What will he do to those tenants? They said, he'll, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to, to what? To other tenants. Who will give him the fruits in, in their seasons. They, they even get it. They're like, yeah, that guy should, sounds like David, right? When he gets Nathan the prophet comes in and let me tell you a story. And Nathan's like, Have the guy killed. Or David's like, have the guy killed. And Nathan's like, The guy is you, bro. And David's like, Oh, I I, I walked right into that, didn't I? That's the idea here. The Pharisees are going, Yeah, they, they should they should die and the owner of the vineyard should give it to someone else. Uh-huh. And Jesus is going, You're condemning yourselves. Jesus said, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. (laughs) This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, this is probably the most scandalous statement in this chapter. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits is what it says. I just think about this. There's a lot of things to to resolve in our own minds and theology. The main one for me when I first read this was, is the kingdom something that they in some degree possessed and were connected to, but not fully? Or is this kingdom within reach? And I think it's both. I think that's the same. When you say that, you're saying the same thing. For the kingdom to be within reach for these unbelieving Israelites, it's the same thing as them having occupied as tenants, right? This land they were on borrowed from God. And in that sense, they had a degree of connection and proximity to God's kingdom, but not full connection and access in Christ. So political Israel, national Israel, in this sense in that sense, was a kingdom. You could say, was the kingdom of God nationally, but not spiritually, because he was their chosen nation, right? Or they were his chosen nation, rather. And he does say, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. What's interesting is, I believe it's in Matthew's gospel. He says, um, or, or it's in Luke. He's astounded by a centurion's faith. Jesus goes oh my gosh, I haven't seen any of this faith in Israel. Whoa, my guy. And then he turns at the Israelites and he goes, I tell you, people are going to come from the east and west to dine at Abraham's table and recline, essentially be a part of the kingdom of God, and the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out. Whoa, 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 whoa. Aggression, not truth, sternness. Truth. He says, it's going to be given to a people producing its fruits. That's not just tax tax collectors, prostitutes, and, you know, sinners that believe. This is Gentiles too, because he's already made the statement that Gentiles will, I mean, this has Romans 11 written all over it, doesn't it? And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces when it falls on anyone It will crush him. We can go on and on with this chapter, but I want to take you to um, Matthew 22 now, which is right here. Here we are. Look at that. This is where the parables start to ramp up. I mean, you thought it was, if it wasn't explicit in the earlier parables, good Lord, it's about to be ratcheted up a new level. Like, it, like in a good way. In a good way. Like, the people, uh, the unbelieving Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day are going to get it. And they're going to go, he's talking about us. And he's going to go, mm, I am. Parable of the, the, the wedding feast. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Why the parables? Why, why, why? Because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, which again we go, okay, in what ways is this parable similar to or communicating aspects of the kingdom? And again, I can't touch on every detail of each parable knowing our time is coming to a close. So I'm just trying to at least give you a, a, a total picture. a a full picture of all the parables. He gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Now, this is where the parables become even more clearly about unbelieving Israel, mainly the Pharisees, religious leaders, elders, scribes of Jesus's day that will kill him and yell, crucify him. The wicked generation of Jesus's day. They wouldn't come, right? Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. Which again, just like the other parable before this, the, the, the owner sends messengers. Hey, give me the fruit. Hey, give me the fruit. Kill them, kill them, kill them. Okay, fine, here's my son. Kill him. Same thing now. But instead of asking for fruit that rightfully belongs to the owner, the king is inviting people to his own wedding feast for his son. He says, I've prepared my dinner. <laughs> My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. You don't have to do anything. You don't got to bring snacks. You don't got to bring your own gluten-free crackers in case you're allergic. I got everything. Just come to the wedding feast. This is exactly the invitation God makes to people. You don't have to do a thing except receive this kingdom. Hebrews talks about that. You want in? Believe. But they paid no attention. They went off. Bummer, man. Bummer. You got to feel this. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, just like the last parable, treated them shamefully and killed them. And the king was livid. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What I believe Jesus is foreshadowing and prophesying of is actually the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 through the Roman Empire. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready because I believe the original people invited was the nation of Israel. Jesus came first to who? The Jew. The gospel is first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So just like the kingdom will be taken, so this opportunity to attend the wedding feast is taken. I'm just going to write here, Israel nationally. National Israel Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Remember a couple of the last parables have have hit on the idea of the unlikely individuals that enter into this kingdom, whether it's the unlikely laborers that are paid or the unlikely um, what was it uh, unlikely is it the laborers? there's something else. Oh, or the prostitutes and tax collectors who go in first, right? It's the concept of the unlikely. And now, as many as you find, those servants went out to, into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. What does that sound like? Do you remember of the parable of the fish? Like, the net collects good and bad fish? Well, you go, no, he's just saying, like, uh, whether you are a good person in your own eyes or super bad, I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's actually happening is that this kingdom is being, or this wedding feast invitation is going to everyone, everyone. And just like the net in the parable of the fish collected good and bad fish, and it's sorted at the end, and just like the field grows wheat and weeds, um, in the end, it's, it's clearly identified as wheat or weeds. So we have the same thing happening here. Watch. The wedding hall is filled with guests. Okay, just because you attend the wedding feast doesn't mean you belong, and, and I mean that with every fiber of my being. When the king came in to look at the guest, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. This is going to be very important. You're not dressed for the wedding feast? Why? The king provided everything, including the garment, which is supposedly. In other words, you, you would have had everything provided for you. Just come and be dressed for the, the, the feast which sounds like Genesis chapter three, when God, Adam and Eve try and clothe themselves and they like, fig leaves. And God's like, no, I can't cover you. Here's some animal skin. The idea is, I believe the wedding garment represents the righteousness of Jesus. And he said to them, friend, how, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? How did the bad fish get in, get in the net? How did the, the weeds get planted in the field? The answer is an enemy planted them. Friend, how did you get in here? And he he was speechless. (laughs) The king said to the attendants, bring him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. This doesn't mean God really only wants a few. It means everyone is invited. But the people who are chosen are the people who respond to the call appropriately and receive the righteousness of Jesus. Now, the reason I say that is because Romans talks about the, the Israelites who pursue a righteousness not by faith but through works versus the Gentiles who just received it by faith. And you get it one way, you don't get it the other. You, you rightly belong into the kingdom one way and then you don't belong the other. So somehow this person, without the appropriate attire, that being the righteousness of Christ, found his way in this, in this feast, which you might say is representative of when Jesus comes back and then in the world there are people who don't belong in his kingdom. They're removed. They're removed. We see this theme over and over. This is the, the secrets of the kingdom, man. This is how the kingdom works. Let me take you to Matthew 25. We'll look at the parable of the ten virgins. There's a lot I want to say, but I do want to give you just a a big picture of what's happening. Okay. Matthew 25, we're going to read a little quicker. Ken says, all are called but the two sons of perdition, at least. All are called but but the two sons of perdition, at least. Mm. Didn't hear that, did you? Parable of the Ten Virgins. I want you to notice, not the attack on unbelieving Israel. That's a a wrong, especially knowing what's going on right now. That's a wrong way to phrase it. Notice the efforts of Jesus within each parable to essentially expose unbelieving Israel's self-righteousness and false security in Torah, in circumcision, in whatever things they're trusting in besides God through faith. He's ripping all the ground out from under them. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Will be like. Meaning, something in the future. I'm just going to highlight that, okay? Who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Everyone wants to make each parable about individuals. And it's like, well, I think Jesus is, uh, like, they want to insert themselves and go, how does this apply to me? It's like, read it as a whole unit, understand who the original audience was, how it applied to them, what it meant for them, then find how it applies to you. But don't jump the gun um, and run for the, how does this apply to me? It's just a terrible way to engage the scriptures where it's like self-centered and it's only about how I fit into it instead of going, what does this mean? What is God saying? How does this reveal himself? And then how does that actually fit into my life? Just a quick tidbit. Five of them were foolish. I'm going to highlight the foolish in orange. Five of them were wise. I'll highlight them in blue. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But you know what the wise did? They took flasks of oil with them. Now, this is where people get the idea of, make sure you have enough oil in your lamps, or you might not make it into the kingdom. Not an appropriate conclusion to come to as far as I'm concerned, depending on what you mean. But usually people mean like, make sure you maintain that salvation all the way through. Make sure you do enough good works to really, it's like, wow, what? The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So guess what? The wise have lamps with enough oil in case it runs out. The foolish, they don't. Doesn't explain why. Just one has expectation and is prepared. The other one is not. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the ominous music starts to come in, <laughs> like in the background right there. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, Look, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealer and buy for yourselves. Don't rely on us. Don't let us suffer for your uh, failed preparation. (laughs) Go get your own oil. While they were going, the foolish The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. Now, this is some people have used this to try and push back against my understanding of Matthew twenty-four, where they're like, "Well, in this parable, you know, Jesus doesn't take the wicked with him; he takes the righteous." And I go, "I never said he doesn't take the righteous into his kingdom." And if this is the only parable you're going to use to build that claim in theology, you're in big trouble, <laughs> you're a big trouble, because I have a plethora of passages to say quite the opposite, that the wicked are taken, the door is shut, though, afterward, the other virgins came, right, they got their oil that they didn't actually have on hand, the Lord, Lord, but he answered, I, I don't know you, well, hold on, we see this in Matthew chapter 7, don't we, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, boom, 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 he goes, hold on, I don't know you. I don't know you. You didn't do the will of my father. Depart from me, all you workers of lawlessness. They lived in sin. They lived in unbelief. They rejected God. They rejected Jesus. They didn't know him. He didn't know them. That's the end of it. I believe a similar thing is happening here. But instead of the five foolish virgins representing like, we want to make it about all people, let's just hone in on the original audience here. Israel's in mind just within Israel specifically not only but specifically within Israel there are foolish and there are wise as historically there have always been the foolish ones they don't know Jesus or the master they don't have what is necessary to enter into his kingdom however you break this parable down the other ones who are wise the remnant within national Israel they do have what is necessary it's called faith It's that simple. Well, the lights and the lamps parallel to the menorah. You can go that far if you want. Like I said, in parables, not every individual detail has a parallel to reality. The point here is there are unbelievers and believers within national Israel. Not all of national Israel actually believes. Not all of national Israel is saved. Not all of that national Israel belongs to God rightfully as his children. So guess what? Um... When James says, didn't only five of them have oil? Five of them didn't have any oil to begin with. They all have, if you read the text, um, verse 3, to confirm what you're saying, the foolish took their lamps, but no oil. Yeah, so if I misspoke, uh, correct, the foolish did not have the oil, the wise did. So, you know, the lamp, if you want to make it representative, of something I would just say the opportunity to believe the gospel. One had faith, the other didn't. And what is necessary to be prepared for the Messiah and his second coming is faith. He says, when I come back to the earth, will I find faith? Right? He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And this all relates to what? This is a parable, if you go back, of the kingdom of heaven. There's judgment once again there's retribution, there's either you're ready or you're not, either you belong or you don't, either you know him or you don't. With every parable seemingly that we've seen, there is a clear delineation between those who belong to God and those who don't, those who bear fruit and those who don't, those who are good fish, those who are bad fish, those who are wheat, those who are tares, Uh, those who are fruitful, those who are fruitless soils, Uh, those who invite, you know, the or receive the invitation to come to the wedding feast, those who do not. And, are you know, those who are righteous and those who are not. Um, those who do the will of the Father and those who do not. Those who are the wicked tenants and those who actually get the, king, get the, the vineyard because they bear fruit. Uh, the categories are very clear. <laughs> you could go down the line of every parable, op- open the Gospel of Matthew, open a word document on your Mac or your whatever, and go down the line and go in every parable, what are the two categories mainly that I see? And you can actually fit almost every one of those parables, break it down and separate each of those categories or people into two main ones. Those who believe, those who don't, those who believe and those who don't. Dang, we got the 10 talents, and then we got the parable of the growing seed. We might be done on time. Let's go. Okay, for it will be like a man. What will be? That's the question. You can't just jump into a text and be like, it will be like my life. No, it's the kingdom, bro. Just kingdom. The kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants entrusted to them his property. Once again, we see the concept of responsibility, entrusting responsibility, and there's accountability with that, and they will be held accountable, and the accounts will be settled, and judgment will come, and what you did with Jesus and his gospel, whether you believed or not, you you, you will be held accountable for that. Over and over, every parable relating to the kingdom is essentially saying the same thing a different way. It is very, very clear. (laughs) It is very clear. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted to them his property. I'm just going to highlight in orange what the master does. And to one, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two. To another, one. What did Jesus say in Matthew 13? Whoever has, more will be given. We're going to see that at the end of this parable. If you're faithful with a little, you get much. And then you're over more. But if you don't do anything with the gospel that was presented to you and there's no fruit and you actually don't have any, you do nothing with the gospel and nothing with Jesus and there's no change, there's no faith, you're going to be like Mr. One Talent here who's going to hide what he has. He gave each according to his ability. Sounds like a pyramid scheme. Yep can interpret it that way (laughs) he who had received the five went at once i'll highlight in blue what they do with it uh well first of all the master leaves but also notice he gives each according to his ability i don't have time to say this i won't okay he who had received five went and traded with them and he made five talents more Give it up for ten-talent man or five-talent man. So also, he who had two talents... I forget if there's ten-talent guy here. He made two more. Let's go. He who had received the one... He dug it in the ground. He hid his master's money. Faithless, fruitless, barren, does nothing with what was given and the opportunity presented... And the proximity to the master did nothing with it. And I think what's mainly in mind is the nation of Israel's opportunity to believe in the Messiah and come into the spiritual kingdom through faith. But a lot of unbelieving Israel, a lot of national Israel rather, chose to live in unbelief. And I think this is representative of that. They dig the master's money, the opportunity, they squander the opportunity like we see um Yeah, I mean, the list goes on and on. They miss out. They're not fruitful. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts. Same language we saw in the previous parables. He's settling accounts. He who received the five came forward, bringing five talents more. Say, master, you gave me five. I made five talents more. Oh, his master said, my guy, my guy well done, good and faithful servant. So we have a good and faithful servant. A good and faithful, you might say, Israelite, because he's addressing national Israel, parable by parable. You've been faithful over a little. This doesn't mean it has no implications on Gentiles, but the priority in delivering this to the original audience was to show that there are faithful servants within Israel. There are faithless ones, just as there is outside of that in the world. You've been faithful over a little. How does Jesus, resp- or the master, sorry, he gets says, I'll, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What did we see in the previous parable, the parable of the foolish virgins? They go, let us in. I, I don't know you. Open to us. I don't know you. <laughs> Here, the master goes, come into its presence, man. It's proximity. It's God's presence. It's the presence of the Master. It's it's friendship with the Master. It's the approval of the Master. It's the well done, good and faithful servant. The Master says to the servants, "That's what we're after," and that only comes through faith. And then we'll say the same thing with Mister Two Talent. You know he's faithful. You know you've given me two talents. I made two two more. His Master goes, "Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little." I'll set you over much. Come into the joy of your master. Hmm? The one who had one talent. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you didn't sow. And and gathering where you, you scattered no seed. I was afraid. I was afraid. Here, I went and hid it in the ground, have what is yours. His master answered, you wicked, slothful servant. And just to skip ahead, the point is, this guy is thrown into the outer darkness. And you go, well, how could he be a servant? But he's cast out of darkness. That must mean you can lose your salvation. No, like James says, it sounds like he doesn't know the master at all. It sounds like he believes some caricature of the master. Sounds like he has no concept of the master, doesn't know him personally, has no intention to do what the master wants, just squanders the opportunity, he's unfaithful, he's fruitless. This is the unbelieving Israelite. And then you go beyond that, this is the unbelieving human being who hears the gospel and goes, mm, don't want anything to do with that, sorry, not for me. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the idea, this is what I really want to hammer home. Jesus said, the kingdom will be handed, taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. What does Jesus say to the guy who had the one talent, which I take to mean mainly, not only, but mainly an unbelieving Israelite. He says, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. That's Matthew 13 right there same language same language where is it where jesus says to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom to them it has been not it's not been given where's my pen where's my pen look for the one who has more will be given he will have an abundance The one who hasn't, even what he has will be taken away. Everyone wants to make the parable of the talents out to be like just about your physical uh, blessings and opportunities and skills and gifts. And while I think that's a part of it, it's mainly about what do you do with the gospel? What do you do with Christ? What do you do about his kingdom? What do you do about the message God has brought about his son and the king is declaring about Jesus? What do you do with that? And depending on how you respond to that, You'll either be faithless, barren, fruitless, condemned, judged, wicked, separated from God, or you'll be righteous. You'll be a faithful servant. You'll be fruitful. You'll be a good fish and you'll be a part of the mustard seed tree and in his kingdom. But if you're not, and even if you're an Israelite, Jesus admits whatever degree of access you have to God right now as national Israel, that will be taken from you. And you know what happens in eighty seventy, the Romans come, the Romans, the Romans come in and destroy the temple. Now what's Israel going to do? And this is not to bel- belittle them as a nation. This is honestly to say, what are they going to do about Judaism, when m- all of that requires the temple? You know, not all of it, most of it that actually mattered to them to stand above the Gentiles. You don't have that without the temple. So yes, Jesus is saying one day you'll. You'll miss out on the opportunity to believe and you'll die. But also it's whatever you think you have, it is going to be taken physically. You're going to see it. The temple's going to be destroyed. Everything you think gives you the upper hand over other nations, it's going to be taken. Your sense of pride, it's going to be taken. But also it's this, the opportunity you had to be in the kingdom, the proximity you had to the Messiah and all that stuff. Jesus is going to say, there will be people who come to me and go, we saw you. Jesus, it's in Luke's gospel. He, they go, on judgment day, we saw you, we ate with you, you were in our city. And he goes, I don't know you. I don't know you. And that's the message of these parables is the secrets of the kingdom of heaven is knowing Jesus. It's believing in him and trusting him for salvation and having a relationship with the living God through the Messiah. That's the secret of the kingdom. He is it. He is the substance. He is the mystery. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So every parable is pointing to that. I wanted to get to Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the barren tree, but they're going to keep saying the same thing. It, there's really no point in getting to it. It's the same message in a different gospel. Same point, same audience, same condemning truth, but also like encouraging truth to those, to those who believe But it's condemning to the enemies of God. Same truth. And you need Him. You don't have the kingdom without Him. You don't have eternal life without Him. You don't have the Father without Him. You don't have new life, new creation, righteousness without Him. You don't. He is everything. He's the substance of the kingdom, He's the focus of the kingdom, He's the entirety of the kingdom. He's the personification of the kingdom. He's the way into the kingdom. He's the door into the kingdom. He's the one who holds the door open at the same time and grants you access into the kingdom. That's the whole point of these parables is the kingdom of God is not about talk and speech and I descend from Abraham and we know the law and we're circumcised and it is Christ alone. That's it. And if you don't have ears to hear, And a heart to receive, and eyes to see, you'll miss him and you'll regard him either as foolishness for the Gentiles or as a stumbling stone for the Jews. And you'll consider him weak instead of strong, you'll consider him foolish instead of wise. These are the parables. About the kingdom. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. I need your help. Would you rate this podcast and give it an honest review to let others know what they can expect from this podcast? It would really help us in reaching more people with the truth of God's word. And be sure to check out above for all of our free resources like trainings, Bible courses, worksheets, our online church, and much more. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and leaving a good review for others.